0: If I was to ask you who is the most quintessentially English composer, what would you answer? And in fact, I should probably say the most quintessentially British composer because after all we are in Cardiff today. I'm willing to bet that most people without too much thought would say Edward Elgar. Now what is it about Elgar that seems to so completely personify Britishness? On the one hand, it's his indelible association with that glory time, the Edwardian Empire, that that time when nationalism, patriotism was reaching fever pitch in the lead up to the First World War. Elgar did much to perpetrate this sense of him as rather correct, the stiff upper-lipped gentleman of British music. He wore a kind of colonel's disguise for the bulk of his life. But curiously, this was because he always felt like an outsider. He'd been born to very humble parents, a music shop proprietor in Worcester, and he constantly felt on the fringes of society, rather than right in the middle, compared to some of his more aristocratic composing colleagues. But of course, as soon as you explore just a little bit deeper inside the music of this great man, you find a very different kind of Britishness, something much more about nakedness, about honesty, and most importantly of all, about expression, So many people have this sense, the world over, that British music is to be played with a kind of stiff upper lip, that it's to be stood back from, which is a bizarre idea given the deep weight of passion that you find just lurking only millimetres from the surface of some of this music. And so I'm going to explore the true Elgar through two of his great masterpieces, the Serenade for Strings, and later on the introduction of Allegro for Strings, and also with some help from Gustav Holst in the shape of his St. Paul suite. Now, it's very interesting, given this picture that we have of Elgar, this stiff gentleman, uh, and uh, in fact, a very perceptive series of essays that the writer Michael Steinberg wrote about the modern symphony, where he actually made a case for a close comparison between Edward Elgar and, of all composers, Gustav Mahler. Let me read you what he says. In comparing the two, he says, Gloom-pleased... Keats' wonderful adjective, life loving, incorruptible, tactless. They were both pursued by similar demons. They relished their sense of exile even as they suffered under it. They had religious feelings at once intense and ambivalent. They were exceedingly dependent husbands. They were intellectual musicians who reveled in the popular touch. But where Marlott looked and behaved like an exasperated genius, Elgar had correct English manners and took pains to disguise himself as Colonel Blimp." Well, ladies and gentlemen, let me turn your attention immediately to the Serenade for Strings in E minor, written in 1892. This is Elgar's first great masterpiece, but as Michael Penedy points out, it's a work that proclaimed his genius at a time when no one particularly wanted to listen. The first movement has a very distinctive dotted rhythm which returns at the end of the work, and it's a bit like an obard, which means morning music. If you go right back to the troubadours in medieval Europe, they had two distinct types of music, one known as ob, meaning dawn music, and the other serena, meaning dusk. So from those, we get obard, morning music, and serenade, evening music. So curiously, even though this piece is entitled serenade, it has a very kind of feisty morning quality to it. Now I was talking earlier about how many musicians, certainly in other parts of the world, think that Elgar should be played terribly correctly and rather with sort of perfect manners, with a kind of flat expression. I have performed this piece a couple of times recently with an American orchestra and they tended to play the opening phrase something like this. All well and good, ladies and gentlemen, but perhaps just a tad bland. This is how we think it should go. Now that is surely a lot more like how it should go. The very idea that British people are to be viewed at a safe distance is surely anathema to all of us. Now you might have noticed just along the way in that very, very first section, we're in 6 8, a lovely lilting two in the bar. And then at a certain point, he cuts the bar in half and we get one bar of 3 8. It sort of keeps the energy up, keeps you listening. So, that's the first paragraph. In a modest and understated way, Elgar sets out his stall. There are sound, possibly Germanic compositional principles here, which involves spinning a musical line out of aspects of the theme, simple organic growth, where this becomes this. which then becomes this and the ever-present binding agent, da-da-da-da-da-da, drawing it all together. These are principles you can chart all the way back, from Brahms to Beethoven to Mozart. But what makes it Elgarian and therefore British is the likeness of touch The case of Elgar, perhaps particularly inherited from French composers like Bizet and Saint-Saëns. And at the same time, and this is the real British quality here, ladies and gentlemen, it's ruminative. In this, as in many ways, Elgar is actually closest to Mahler of all his Austro-German cousins. Well, out of that, the B section of this ABA structure is gently, understatedly born. the next chapter in this intimate tale. the A section is back again to round off the movement. You heard there the call and response of the solo violin to tutti violins so beloved of Elgar. And whilst the harmonies are simple, diatonic, there's always a light dusting of chromaticism inherited from Wagner and absolutely endemic to Elgar's generation. The middle movement of the three which make up Elgar's Serenade for Strings is the most gorgeously emphatic Larghetto. The tune is laced with the best Victorian nostalgia. But this is music of sentiment. It's not to be performed sentimentally. So on the one hand, I was talking about the American orchestra's approach, which is to sort of blandify all the expressive extremes of the music. The other end of the spectrum, you get people who go far too far in a kind of quasi-romantic, highly over-sentimentalized account of the music. That doesn't work with Elgar either. Hopefully we can find the middle ground. Now in this rising open figure you hear straight away a sense of yearning and also a wonderful quality of intertwining. This melody intertwines itself, first the first violins and then the second violins, a kind of overlapping in effect. Elgar played first violin in the Three Choirs Festival Orchestra. His father was only ever in the second violins. And so uh, Elgar wanted to make sure that there was a sense that both violin parts were getting equal amounts of melodic interest. And out of that hanging G natural, the theme is born, and how English or British it is. Just listen to the number of understated dissonances which present and then fall away. now, in a new episode, Elgar focuses on aspects of the theme, a song that quietly and persistently refuses to be silenced. and the theme is back in full, couched in a texture of absolute tranquility. At the end, that intertwining introductory motif is back, but now there are four proper overlappings, the violas leading to the second violins, leading to the first violins, and finally back to the violas. And the strings at this point, this coda, end piece to the movement, are muted for the first time. So constantly this sense of Elgar just toying with elements of an idea. Now, there's nothing new in that, and that's certainly derived from what I've described earlier as sound, Germanic, symphonic principles. But somehow the kind of particular, poignant, poetic, and lonely way that he just explores elements of the theme are quintessentially of him and of our country. Another aspect of composition that was very important to Elgar was a sense of completing the circle. So, the third and final movement of the Serenade is back in a compound time signature. The first movement was in 6-8, this is now in 12-8. Also, we're back in E minor. Again, listen to the searching quality of this music. Things are by no means resolved. So on. Well, in order to bring us back exactly to where we started, the first movement dotted motif, you remember, is now back, and we also return to the first movement's time signature, that of 6 8. So he's reintroduced the rhythmic texture of his first movement, First Idea, and the first movement B section idea over the top. And all this while still keeping the character of the last movement alive. It's easy to think, ladies and gentlemen, of Gustav Holst as a composer coming from a completely different era from Elgar's. In fact, he was only born 17 years later than Elgar, and both composers died in the same year, 1934. Now, where Holst's Britishness is different from Elgar's is that Holst, alongside many composers, notably Ray Form Williams, they were much more preoccupied and interested in the revival of and use of British folk music of previous ages. But what binds Holst and Elgar most completely together, I think, is in an abhorrence of sentimentality. Holst actually said that sentimentality was the supreme crime in art. Surely a sentiment that Elgar would absolutely have echoed. Hence, in Holst's case, his use of the folk idiom is gutsy, unstuffy, and practical. So in the first movement of the piece we're gonna explore now, Holst's St. Paul's Suite, we get a jig, which interestingly was invented by uh, the inhabitants of our fairest isle, and not um, Germany's, as often supposed. Just because J.S. Bach, in particular, wrote a number of jigs, the assumption is that that's where they originated from. No, the jig is an earthy dance coming very much from this country. Now listen to how Holst meddles with the time signature in this jig, just like Elgar did in the first movement of his serenade. But Holst is expanding time rather than contracting it. So we've got 6-8, which is two in the bar, and it becomes 9-8, three in the bar at certain points, creating a very kind of elastic effect. So you can hear immediately the use of that folk idiom is completely foreign to the world of Elgar, but it's nonetheless very British. You get underneath it very simple diatonic harmonies, once again, more close to Elgar, just as this kind of earthy dance would require. But where he does go from here now is to develop the melody, again, just as Elgar might have do, taking the essence of the melodic shape. I'll show you what I mean. Now, the movement ends with an almost inevitable hoedown, accelerating like a rocket into the stratosphere. Nothing too genteel about that. Now, the second movement of Holst's St. Paul Suite is entitled simply Ostinato. Ostinato being a device in music, an Italian word meaning obstinate. In other words, a figure that goes round and round and round and round. And Holst is true to the accurate meaning of that word in that he has this ostinato figure which starts at the beginning of the movement and runs all the way without faltering to its very end. And in this sense, you have to remember that there's another quality in British music, certainly of this sort, which is purely about education. Holst St. Paul Suite is called St. Paul's Suite because Holst was from uh, around about 1905 the uh, head of music at St. Paul's Girls' School in London. And so a lot of the music he wrote, particularly pieces such as this, were for his female pupils to play. In a way, it's a bit like Benjamin Britten's Simple Symphony of a later era, showing a particular device in music and then, as a composer separate from teacher, enjoying the challenge of what he could do with a fixed figure, in this case this ostinato. So using music as a tool for education, something very British about that. It's interesting to compare and contrast Elgar and Holst in this regard. Elgar abhorred teaching and did anything he could to avoid having to do it. And there's a fantastic description from the new young head teacher of the Mount School in Worcester where Elgar was forced to teach due to lack of money. Her name was Rosa Burley and she said the following, From various sources I had learned that he was not always good-tempered as a teacher, and that in consequence the girls were afraid of him. Thus it was the custom of every pupil at the end of her lesson to telegraph the state of the emotional atmosphere to her successor. And there was one child who enraged him to such an extent that the others had begged that she might be placed last on the list in order to prevent her from making things impossible for them. Compare and contrast, if you will, that with uh, the memories of one Nancy Gotch, who was a pupil at St. Paul's Girls' School, and obviously delighted in the doings of their head of music, Gustav Holst. She said, Our director of music was referred to affectionately as Gussie, and what an inspiring conductor he was. We could have played anything if he'd willed it so. His fair-haired wife played the double bass, and she sometimes argued with him. We listened in silent awe when this happened. It never lasted long. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have this totally persistent ostinato. And over the top of it, he fashions a kind of hemiola-like tune, like the device we looked at in the previous movement, and then a waltz theme set alongside it. The essential shape of it, a descending scale, as you will hear. The third section of Holst St. Paul's Suite is entitled Intermezzo and Holst based this intermezzo on one level on a technique beloved of the 17th century English master Henry Purcell, the ground bass. Over the top of that Holst weaves a simple solo violin melody followed by this little surprise, exotic in a way that Elgar never would have been. At this point, we get an even greater surprise, an Algerian melody which was notated during a, a bicycling holiday that Holst had there in 1908. A kind of new eclecticism being born in this music, which we now think of, I think, as quintessentially British. On now into the last movement of the St. Paul Suite, which is entitled, Finale, brackets, the Dargason. Now, the dargason is an example of uh, Holst wearing his folk hat again. It's uh, basically a dance, a theme, usually of eight bars or thereabouts, which goes round and round and round, being passed to different voices within the orchestra. Um, it's interesting that this music is actually on its second outing in Holst's over It first appeared in his second suite for military band, dating from 1911. Now, the fun of a dargasson is that whilst it keeps repeating itself, it's what other tunes you can then combine it with that's the fun. Let me just play you the, the, the dargasson theme as it exists, firstly in the first violins, and then it's taken over by the second violins eight bars on. It's effectively a jig to answer that of the first movement. So, shortly after he's established that theme, he then delights in combining it with another, the grand old man of English folk music, none other than green sleeves. And what he delights in particularly here is that ongoing 6-8 rhythm of the Dargason, here in the violas, with a slight accent on each strong beat, versus the green sleeves, which is 3-4, so one in the bar, effectively, over the two in the bar of the 6-8. Hulse said at the time that he found this effect intoxicating. So, ladies and gentlemen, two delicious but very different slices of so-called English music. Holst weaving together his educational simplicity with exotica, Purcellian techniques, and English folk music. Elgar, on the other hand, drawing his voice from those well-known English masters, Mahler, Beethoven, Brahms, Bizet, Saint-Saëns, and Wagner, but making them very much his own. Let's now perform for you these two pieces back-to-back. Holst St. Paul's Suite, and before that, Elgar's Serenade for Strings. I think it's no exaggeration to say that Edward Elgar's introduction and allegro for solo string quartet and string orchestra set a new template for what English music, certainly for strings, could be. There's something incredibly densely and richly scored about this work, so much so that when you look at the notes on the page, it's hard to see how the clarity of musical thought and musical line will shine through but yet in the hands of a master like Elgar with an absolutely acute ear for color, particularly string color, shine through those lines do. And so this piece absolutely created a whole kind of flood of inspiration which then led in the next generation to Vaughan Williams's Fantasia on a Theme of Thomas Tallis, and then a generation on again to Michael Tippett's masterwork, his Fantasia Contratante on a Theme of Corelli. It's called Introduction and in Allegro. The introduction is effectively, well, exactly 58 bars long. And in the course of that 58 bars, Elgar sets forward four principal ideas, which will then form the basis for development and elaboration as the work continues. One interesting thing to bear in mind is the the scoring of the piece, the fact that we have a solo string quartet out front and the mass of the rest of the string orchestra behind. In one sense, therefore, this is an early model for what became known subsequently as neoclassicism or, to be more accurate, neo-baroque writing in music. In other words, the idea of taking an older form, in this case, the Baroque Concerto Grosso, where you would have a small group of soloists known as the Concertante pitted against the rest of the orchestra known as the Ripieno. But that's where the similarity ceases. Elgar's piece has nothing to do with Baroque music or Baroque idiom. It is quintessentially and absolutely his and of the early 20th century. I said there are four elements. This is the first one, you hear right at the beginning a fanfare of downward turning fourths Pretty raw emotion, right at the start of this piece, on display. So, by the way of very British balance, I suppose, after the outburst, we get what uh, Elgar... Well, he actually put a a little quotation above this in the score, which is smiling with a sigh of this next theme, which is actually a quotation from Shakespeare's Cymbeline. A rising aspirational figure with a rhythm which appears to go across the bar. I'm just going to ask Leslie Hatfield, the first solo violin in the quartet, to play it for us, and I'm going to show you how the rhythm goes across the bar. Three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Now, I was counting three in a bar there. In fact, the metre of this music is four. So, once again, we find Elgar going against our presuppositions about where the strong beats and where the bar lines might lie. I'm going to play that now with the whole of the quartet, this opening figure. So that's the second feature or element of this introduction that is putting forward. He then immediately gives us the third, which is like an answer, a counterpoint to that rising aspirational figure for the strings of the orchestra, particularly the first violins, falling by way of an answer. <laughs> So you heard that the emphatic fourths of the very opening of the work have reappeared, but they're somewhat mollified, again, perhaps in a a British way. And then, for Elgar's fourth element, we get a tune beautifully announced by the solo viola from the solo string quartet, which apparently was suggested to Elgar by a walk he took in the Wye Valley back in 1901, where he heard the distant sound of a Welshman singing what presumably was a traditional Welsh folk song. Now, this theme has a kind of melancholic, nostalgic quality to it. It's also built around falling thirds. And Elgar thought at the time, rightly or wrongly, that this was in itself a real Welsh idiom. So a rare example of Elgar using folk music as a basis for inspiration. So, that Welsh melody, rich in thirds, provides great scope for rumination, for soul-searching in composition. And what stops it from being purely, shall we say, Edwardian, or rather uptight in character, if I can call it that, is the extraordinary diversity of speed that Elgar chooses. It, It ebbs and flows constantly, giving it a sense of real kind of hot emotion. So we reach the allegro proper after our 58 bars of introduction, and we get what was originally the second element from the introduction, fully fleshed out now as a melody in its own right. And you have to ask yourself, is this melody the personification of British music? A searching figure which goes round the houses without the hot spot, the focal point that most tunes have. The idea perhaps, a very British idea, of not saying too much. Okay, shortly afterwards, we get another new idea, a bustling semi-quaver figure full of nervous energy, which is loosely based on the shape of our Welsh folk tune. You notice there particularly the use of articulation to heighten the sense of swell in the music. As the crescendo is working its way through, you've got these very short, off the string, semiquavers in the strings, and then at the height of the crescendo, suddenly he puts lines underneath each semiquaver. So suddenly they're very long, having been very short. Suddenly a very fulsome effect at the hot high point of the rise. There's another novel coloristic effect a little bit later on. You get the theme, the Welsh theme, in the solo violin and the solo viola of the string quartet and set against them, playing the same notes, i.e. in unison, the tremolando figure in the second violin and the cello. A tremolando sounds for all the world like a mandolin and what you have to bear in mind is that Elgar spent a good deal of time in Italy during the composition of this work. So there we are. Perhaps he was uh, taking another foreign influence and absorbing it into the Elgarian cauldron, this time an Italian mandolin. What a great pause chord. You get a sense that something very significant is about to happen. It reminds me of that other great string piece I mentioned earlier, Michael Tippett's Fantasia Concertante on a theme of Corelli. I think he obviously borrowed his idea from Elgar, because what is about to happen now is a fugue, and in the Tippett piece, just as here in the Elgar, there is this amazing dot, dot, dot chord, like the hairs are up on the back of your neck. You can't imagine What extraordinary thing is about to come bursting through the door? So he decides instead of a development passage, which would be the norm, again conforming to Germanic symphonic principle, instead of a development section, raking over the ideas, taking them forward in a variety of different directions, Elgar's going to write a fugue. And he said with great pleasure to his publisher, Jaeger, that it was going to be a devil of a fugue with all sorts of japes and counterpoint. Let me just show you the theme of it, the subject of this fugue. It starts off in the second violins, and you'll hear it's full of both diminished and augmented intervals. So you can hear it's quixotic, it's knotty. It's certainly not a melody to remember. It's more like a kind of a frisson, an effect, a blast of nervous energy. And then directly following that first utterance of the subject, the first violins come in over the top of the seconds with an answer, which, as you'd expect, according to strict fugal practice, occurs a fourth higher than the original Shortly after that, ladies and gentlemen, we get a new subject, but made out of related materials, these augmented intervals in particular, from the solo string quartet, over the top. Very chromatic, this music, yearning, but thoroughly unsettled. Well, there's still bags more for Elgar to say with this fugue as a whole. You hear now him playing with the motif, the main motif from the fugue's subject, and then another aspect you'll hear in the solo quartet comes in shortly afterwards. It's marked Pio Animato, so the tempo has just racked up another notch. And exactly this point the string quartet go into another idea again, all relating, although at the same time, to the original fugue motif, a classic Elgar falling figure. And You'll hear various sections of the orchestra now infected by that first breakaway quartet idea we just heard. First of all the second violins you'll hear with it. <laughs> now as the section draws to a close there's a combination of the essence of the fugue idea in all its forms and those bustling semiquavers we heard from much earlier in the piece Always the big question for a composer, how do you finish a fugue when it's going to lead you into well, what is here, the recapitulation, the final section of his introduction and Allegro? Well, there's consummate control at work here, compositionally speaking. You heard a thinning down, a winding down, which takes us into this kind of recapitulation where all the main strands will reappear, including that tender Welsh theme transformed from its intimate origins into an emphatic climax. This is, ladies and gentlemen, without any doubt, great British music. It's also great Elgarian music, and it's very easy to confuse the two. Because Elgar had such a strong influence on so many composers who've come since, in the course of the last hundred years, his motifs have been so completely woven into their music that one gets this sense that somehow Elgar is Britishness which is pretty much the idea we started out with. The fact is Elgar isn't more British say than a Holst or a Briton, he's just Elgarian and somehow the two have become synonymous. Mm -hmm. Time for some questions. Uh, One question and it's corollary, Charles. Um, Although it sometimes staged the Three Choirs Festival in Worcester, I'm of the mind that Worcester was never quite the uh, cultural or musical centre of Great Britain. Mm. Um, Do you think that this isolation musically contributed um, more than any other factor to... um